It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Robert Lustig, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Well, thank you so much, Laban. I'm not sure I'm anybody's superhero, but, you know, whatever, if the shoe fits. I'm going to start off with something that I deem really important. And I'll take you back to a song written by the Archies back in the 60s or the 70s called Sugar Sugar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. They have played that as intro for me in I don't know how many podcasts. <laughs> I'm going to rewrite the lyrics for you today, and it goes a little something like this, and I hope YouTube don't give me a copyright strike for how close this is to the real thing, but it goes along the lines of, Robert, then, 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 oh, Dr. Lustig, then, 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 you were my candy boy, but now you've got me wanting less. Oh my God! I hope not. <laughs> I, I want to. I don't want my wife to hear that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, uh, Robert. You have got me wanting less sugar, and why is that? Uh, well, you need the education. You know, sugar has been the um, the addiction that no one wants to call uh, because so many people are. And because they didn't see it as a problem, so it remained socially acceptable. Um, you know, how many people do you know who say, oh, I have a horrible sweet tooth? And they don't mind uh, saying it. They don't even, you know, mind confiding it in you. In fact, the reason they're doing it is because they're looking for somebody to indulge with, you know. Um, and as long as that remains socially acceptable, I mean, you would never go up to somebody and say, oh, I have a terrible cocaine problem. You know, so the bottom line is this is the addiction that everyone can afford. This is the addiction that apparently did no harm. And sadly, your grandmother's a pusher. God rest that woman's soul. <laughs> so, you know, th this, this basically flew in under the wire. People didn't realize how addicting it was. You know, now I will tell you, it's not addicting for everybody. You know, I mean, if you take a look at addictive substances, you know, cocaine, heroin, very high penetrance for addiction. Nicotine, also very high penetrance for addiction. Not completely, but, you know, most people. Alcohol. All right. So let's take alcohol. 40% of Americans are teetotalers. Don't touch the stuff. I'll bet you that number is lower in Australia, though. <laughs> Um, 40% are social drinkers, you know, pick up a beer, put it down, no problem. 20% of people have an alcohol problem and 10% are hardcore alcoholics. 
Now, what distinguishes the hardcore alcoholic from the guy who doesn't, you know, th- doesn't even drink or the guy who puts it down? Well, we still don't know. So clearly it's not everybody, but it's a sizable enough proportion of the population where we have to be cognizant and mindful and put in public health measures to try to control it. Same with sugar. And it makes sense that that would be the case because after all, where do you get alcohol from? Fermentation of sugar. You know, we call it wine. It's, it's, we do it in Napa and Sonoma every day. You know, the big difference between alcohol and sugar is that for alcohol, the yeast does the first step of metabolism, which is called glycolysis. For sugar, we do our own first step. But after that, what the mitochondria of your liver or of your brain see is exactly the same. So it makes sense that the two would actually have very similar addiction patterns. And this, unfortunately, is why children today get the diseases of alcohol without alcohol. They get type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. Prior to 1980, those were the diseases of alcohol, but kids don't drink alcohol. So, you know, where are they getting it from? Well, they're getting it from sugar. It's just that, you know, we call it something different. Now, that's an important point because your background is a uh, pediatric neuroendocrinologist by trade. It's what you did. It's where you, where you applied your craft, really. Is that right? Well, for 40 years, you know, and I'll be honest with you, Laban, I didn't really realize this myself for probably the first 20 years of my practice. You know, I majored in nutritional biochemistry at MIT for undergrad. And so I learned all this stuff back then. And then I went to medical school and they promptly beat it out of me and said, oh, you don't need to know any of that stuff. You know, it's all about calories and, you know, chronic diseases. You know, these are chronic degenerative conditions that are going to just happen to everybody and you need medicine. And, you know, I bought that because, you know, these were the guys telling me, you know, who was I to challenge that? So I practiced that way. And to be honest with you, none of my patients got better. And then in 1994 came sort of the beginning of the turning point for me, the discovery of this hormone called leptin. So leptin is a hormone that your fat cells make, circulates in your bloodstream, goes to your brain and tells your brain, hey, I've got enough energy on board. I don't have to eat the whole house down and I can engage in expensive metabolic processes. I can exercise. I can go through puberty. I can go through pregnancy because there's enough energy on board and I'm not starving. So leptin doesn't tell your brain how fat you are. Leptin tells your brain how thin you are. Okay. It's a floor, but no ceiling. So leptin levels in your blood correlate with your body fat. Now, the question is, if your leptin was working, why would you gain any fat? Because after all, you would eat something, your uh, uh, energy would go to fat, your leptin levels would go up, your brain would see it, and that would therefore reduce your food intake so that you would stay weight stable, kind of like the servo mechanism on your air conditioner or in your refrigerator, right? Keeping things constant. That's the idea. Well, clearly something was wrong because all these obese people had very high leptin levels. So the question is why? Why did they have high leptin levels? Was it 
that their brain wasn't seeing the leptin? Was it not transducing the leptin signal? Or was there something wrong with the leptin itself? So this was a very, very big question back in the mid-1990s when I sort of got into this. And as a neuroendocrinologist, this was sort of in my wheelhouse. So this was the question in science at the time. At the same time, I moved from the University of Wisconsin to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And this is the brain tumor, you know, uh, capital of the world for, for pediatric brain tumors, you know, it's the cancer research hospital. And so we had a whole stable of patients who had had brain tumors, who were treated with surgery or radiation, who survived the treatment but then became massively obese, enormous, 350, 400 pounds. They were perfectly normal before the tumor, and now they are blimps. They are enormous. And the question is, why did this happen? And how did the damage to the brain translate into this very, very awful result? And the parents were saying to me, you know, this is like double jeopardy. You know, my kids survived the tumor only to succumb to the therapy. And it was up to me to try to, like, figure out what to do about it. So I did a lot of research. I went to the books, you know, and I was prepared because I was a neuroendocrinologist. And I remember from my training about hypothalamic lesions and, you know, how it could cause uh, weight gain. And, you know, there's a connection between the hypothalamus and the pancreas. And so when that uh, connection is damaged, the pancreas over-releases the hormone insulin. Insulin, as your listeners know, is the diabetes hormone, right? Diabetics take shots of insulin. The question is why? Why do they take shots of insulin? The answer is because the insulin moves the energy from their bloodstream into fat for storage. So insulin is really the energy storage hormone. So it became apparent to me that these kids had very high insulin levels. And the reason was because they couldn't see their leptin because that part of the brain was damaged. And because they couldn't see their leptin, their brain thought they were starving. And because their brain thought they were starving, they had to put more pounds on. So they released extra insulin to shunt extra energy into fat, <clears throat> to make the fat grow and to make the leptin go higher, but the brain still couldn't see it. And so you ended up with this vicious cycle that never got better. So that was the idea. And the question is, could I prove it? Well, how can I prove it and help these patients at the same time? Well, I had to get the insulin down. I couldn't fix the brain because I'm not a neurosurgeon and you know, even neurosurgeons can't do that. Okay, but I could get the insulin down. So there's a, there's a medicine called octreotide that will suppress insulin release. And I said, all right, let's try giving that medicine to these patients. This is 1995. And the first patient, you know, girl who gained enormous weight after a pineal germinoma, you know, Goomba sitting right there in the middle of her energy balance pathway. And I told the mother, okay, I've never used this medicine before. And what you're going to do is you're going to call me in two weeks and tell me, you know, what's going on with her. And then I'll see you in a month. 
She calls me in one week. Dr. Lustig, something's happening. And I go, oh, God. Adverse event. <clears throat> Study closed <laughs> down. Go to jail. You know, lose my license. You know, I was just ready for the worst. And <clears throat> I say to the mom, hey, what happened? What happened? She says, well, we would go to Taco Bell. And she would normally eat five tacos and an enchirito, and she'd still be hungry. We just went to Taco Bell, and she ate two tacos, and she was full. And she just vacuumed the house. These were kids who sat on the couch, ate Doritos, and slept. They had no energy. And the reason they had no energy is because their brains thought they were starving. So they were always in energy conservation mode. So they didn't want to do any exercise. They had no interest in exercise because their brain thought they were starving. And here now, this kid goes and vacuums the house. And as it turns out, of the eight kids that I originally treated in that pilot study, one became a competitive swimmer. Two kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs. You know, I mean, these were kids who had lost interest in life because they were too tired to partake in it. So this was really interesting. So we did a repeat study, this time a double-blind placebo control trial. And this time we built in a quality of life questionnaire. And what we realized was that as the insulin went down because of the medicine, not only did their weight go down, but their quality of life improved. And it the quality of life improved based on how well we got the insulin down. So this was proof. This was not correlation. This was causation. This was proof that the behaviors that we associate with obesity, gluttony and sloth, decreased energy expenditure, increased energy intake, were actually biochemically driven. That was the beginning of the end of the current notion about, quote, energy balance. For me, that was the moment when I realized that our current paradigm of dealing with obesity and dealing with chronic disease didn't make sense. Were you angry? Not yet. I got angry. I'll tell you when I got angry. <clears throat> I started getting angry in 2006. So that all happened back in the early 2000s, you know, 1995 to 2000. And I started realizing, look, the goal of obesity therapy is get the insulin down. But the thing was, most kids didn't have brain tumors. And most adults didn't have brain tumors, but they still had high insulin. So the question was, why? Why they have high insulin? Yes, the insulin is causing the increased intake, the gluttony, and the decreased expenditure, the sloth. Yes, the insulin is, but what's causing the insulin problem? We just still didn't know that. And then in 2006, I was asked by the NIH, National Institute of Health. It was the 100th anniversary of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, the toxicology people. And they were having a big symposium. Uh, one, the two-day symposium. First day was going to be on their successes, like lead poisoning and pollution and asthma. And the second day was going to be on the new challenges. So like 
obesity, metabolic syndrome, and attention deficit disorder and autism. Okay. So they asked me to give a talk on what I thought was the biggest environmental contributor to obesity and diabetes. And they probably thought I was going to give a talk on, oh, bisphenol A or phthalates or, you know, organic chlorines or, you know, some, some toxin in the, in the environment, you know, DDT or something, you know, like that, because after all, these are the toxicologists. And, you know, I could have given a talk on that, but I said to myself, wait a second. What diseases are kids getting today that they never got before? Type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease. No one had ever seen either of those diseases in a kid before 1980. And now 13% of all kids have fatty liver. And one out of every three new onset diabetics in children is type 2. Never seen before. But now we got this epidemic of these are clearly, you know, these are the, 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 uh, these are the, the, the hallmark of the problem. So I opened my biochemistry text and I said, all right, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease, what caused them before? Alcohol. So I opened up my biochemistry text and I said, you know, from 1974, and I said, okay. What doubles is alcohol? Sugar. And then I did the comparison and I realized, oh my God, this is what's causing it. It's the sugar. The sugar is causing the fatty liver. The fatty liver is causing the insulin resistance. The pancreas has to make extra insulin to make the liver do its job. And the pancreas is burning out. And that's the, where the diabetes comes from. So I gave this talk to the NIH and I said, I think sugar is the problem and here's why. And my talk was the talk before the bathroom break. And so they all milled out of the room and, you know, 15, 20 minutes pass and no one's milling back in. And I'm going, what the hell? What's going on? You know, why isn't this thing going on? And so I went outside and I went into the bathroom and they see me in the bathroom and they practically tackle me. These the audience. They go, oh my God, oh my God, this is it. You you have to tell, give this talk everywhere to everybody. Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, what? I was so shocked. You know, these toxicologists are telling me, yes, it's the sugar. And anyway, since then I've basically, you know, been given talks on that. And that's my story. It's a pretty damn good story, Robert. And 13 plus million views of Sugar the Bitter Truth on uh, YouTube at this point. So I don't even know how many other platforms it's on as well. But that's the video that caught my attention to you a few years back. Yeah. And if I, you I, didn't think, I didn't think my mother would watch that. You know, <laughs> 13 million people watched it. And it's just growing year on year. Yeah, I don't understand it, but whatever. Robert, do you, that, that discovery, do you feel like you're a chance for a Nobel Prize at any point? Oh. Not that you say you deserve one, but you think you're a chance for one? 
Not even remotely close. Not oh, no. even remotely close, Laban. Okay, so I know a bunch of Nobel Prize winners. You went to school with four of them. I yeah, I did. Or had alumni at Stuyvesant High School. I know quite a few, quite a few. And I'm going to tell you, okay, I'm not even even remotely in their league in terms of what I've done. To be honest with you, what I've done is almost, um, you know, sort of common sense. You know, you don't get Nobel Prizes for common sense. You get Nobel Prizes for really doing the legwork on something completely brand new. And that's not what I do. Um, I'm not, I don't think I deserve any awards. The only thing I deserve is for the message to get out and actually use it to fix the problem. That I believe. But no, no, no. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not so you know, self-impressed that I, you know, I think I, I uh, even rate with you know, any of these other people who've won Nobel Prizes. Not, not even close. One thing I love to do, Robert, is uh, in my research for my guests is jump on the internet and find out where they went to school. And Stuyvesant High School in New yep. York, you're from Brooklyn originally, I think, is yep. a, seems to be a prestigious school in terms of the alumni. Yeah, and yeah. outrageously, I don't think you've even gotten a mention there. What do you have to do? What do you have to do to get your name on that bloody list is what I want to know. Oh, um, you have to do something more than what I've done. Um, I, I know, like I said, I know people who've won those awards. Okay. Some of them are even my friends. And um, no, it's, it's, a, it's a completely different echelon. Well, given that's the case, I'm really curious to know, what do you hope your legacy will be? Well, that's a good question, Laban. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I mean, basically, I just want to solve the problem. You know, and to be honest with you, it's not that I have to solve the problem. Society has to solve the problem because we can't afford this. All right. You know, we have healthcare going down the tubes. We have health going down the tubes and we have our planet going down the tubes. And people think those are different things, and they're not. They're all the same thing. It all comes back to the food. Really, it all comes back to the food, even the planet part. So, you know, recognizing how these things intersect, you know, this is a systems biology issue. Understanding root cause is a systems biology issue. And the problem is what we've been doing is we've only been treating results. We haven't been treating the root cause. So that would be my legacy, is pointing the, to the root cause and having people understand the root cause of the problem and then you know, fixing the root cause in order to solve the problem. And if that happened, I would die happy. Which I find uh, it's a great answer, Robert. And, and in, in some more research that I did on the meaning of lustig, it translates... <laughs> Quite loosely into merry, jovial, funny, comical, and cheerful. And I, how close to that description are you? <laughs> I I am one hundred eighty degrees <laughs> opposite. You, you will you will. I mean, seriously, if you knew me and my friends do, okay, they will tell you I am the biggest Eeyore that ever lived. All right. Oh, gloom and doom, just waiting for the sky to fall, you know, right out of, right out of Winnie the Pooh. In fact, 
we just had a book party for my new book, Metabolical, just on Sunday. And that's how I got roasted. They basically compared me to Eeyore. <laughs> well, this is uh... – and I can I can empathise with you, Robert, because I read your book. I read your book in three days. It was released uh, three four days ago over here in Australia, and I it's a quite a big book. I think it's about a, an eleven or twelve hour read. I'm I'm a bit faster than that, thankfully, but I got through it. And the review that I left on Amazon was like watching a car crash happen in super slow motion. And uh, if you want to be red pilled, watch The Matrix. If you want to be knocked over by a, a packet of red pills, read this book. Because the information contained in there for people that know nothing about what you talk about will be incredibly confronting, but equally important for them to know. Why is that? Um, you know, we've all been propagandized. We've all been, you know, hoodwinked. We've been led down a primrose path that there's a pill for everything. Yeah, I know where it came from. I actually describe how that came about in chapter two of the book, you know, where how antibiotics basically took over and, you know, everybody has just assumed, well, there's a pill for that. And the fact of the matter is that there sometimes is a pill for that, for acute disease. Sometimes acute disease, there's a pill for that. For chronic disease, diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, polycystic ovarian disease, fatty liver disease, which is 75% of all the disease in America today and is breaking the bank. For those diseases, they are all chronic metabolic diseases. They are all mitochondrial diseases. They're all diseases of the mitochondria, the little energy burning factories inside your cells. And we don't have any pill that gets there. And to be honest with you, based on the way it works and the mechanisms of action and the transcription factors and the co-repressors and the co-activators, et cetera, we never will. This is not druggable. It's foodable. Food will get there. But also processed food will get there too and actually cause it to be dysfunctional. So food can be the antidote and processed food is the poison and the medicines can't get there. So the bottom line is the only thing you can do is fix the food. The problem is that's not what people think. People think, oh, there's a pill for that. And so they've, and they've also been told all of these diseases, the ones I just mentioned, all eight of them, Number one, they've been told they're the diseases. They're not. They're the symptoms of the disease. The real disease is what's going on inside the cell. Right? And, they're, and like I said, that's, that's only foodable, not druggable. And they've also been told that, um, the, uh, you know, that all of these diseases are chronic, unrelenting, degenerative, progressive, non-reversible. And so if you get it, you say, oh, well, my mother got it. So, of course, I was going to get it, too. This is all hogwash. Okay, All of these diseases, even the Alzheimer's, is reversible. All of it is reversible. But it is not reversible if you keep eating the same shit you did before. So that's the, that's the, that's the propaganda. And that's what I'm working to try to debunk. 
Well, this is something that's super duper close to my heart, Robert. Through my own health journey, 17 years of a chronic GERD disorder that I was told by 20 different medical professionals and surgeons that it was incurable and that it was a genetic disorder, I was able to reverse it and stop it within a few days of removing uh, gluten initially and then refined carbohydrate. And as I've removed more and more of those uh, diabolical items that you talk about, my health's gotten better and better and better and to the point where I'm Benjamin Button, you know, like reversing my, I'm 41 in June of 2021. And Mm -hmm. and it's something that really resonated with me with regards to those obese kids. Inexplicably in May, 2018, I started running and then I started marathon running and then ultra distance running. And Mm -hmm. I know a marathon is on your bucket list. My question is, have you achieved that yet? And if you have or haven't, (laughs) what, what else is on the list? No, no, that's not on my that's not on my bucket list. I mean, you know, that would be nice. That's not on my bucket list. To be honest with you, I don't have the time to train. You know, I'm just too, I, I just have too much to do. I'm just too busy. The good news for me, though, is that I clinically retired. So I stopped seeing patients because, to be honest with you, that was the biggest time and stress sink there was. And what I realized back in 2017 was that I could take care of a million kids easier than I could take care of one. And I said, you know, other people can do the one, but apparently I'm the one who has to do the million. So that's kind of what I did. And in the process, my stress level went way down, which has helped me immensely. And so I'm actually very thankful. You know, I did it for 40 years. I put in my dues, you know, I I did the work. You know, I got my hands, you know, very dirty for, you know, a very long time. I don't have anything to, uh, you know, sort of regret or, you know, complain about. I mean, I need, in a way, I needed to be able to do that work in order to be able to understand what was going on because it was the patients who taught me. And, you know, without that uh, input, you know, I never would have really understood what I was doing. So I'm very happy with the way it worked. But to me, the you know the 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 stopping of patient care was really uh, really important in terms of stress reduction and uh, you know I I really did feel like it was a breath of fresh air when I when I came out from under. One thing that just came to mind, uh, Robert, is uh, a number of the other guests that I've had a very diverse guest list. A number of them are professional speakers and motivational speakers, and some of the best in the world in their fields. They talk about the importance of uh, gratitude. And it's a word that's thrown around a lot these days. And, you know, the observation of you being referred or compared to Eeyore, (laughs) I I would encourage not just you, but anyone in your situation to focus on the good that you have done. Because without even having to ask you, I know that you've impacted directly millions, tens, maybe billions of people's lives eventually with the work and the the research and the the writing that you've done. Uh, Fat Chance. The Fat Chance Cookbook, The Hacking of the American Mind, uh, Sugar, The Bitter Truth, that, that podcast or the uh, the video, uh, and Sugar has 56 names. <laughs> like, um, and then Metabolical, which will, will, you know, hopefully not be your last piece of work. What's next after that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. My, do- my daughters both call this book The Kitchen Sink. Because everything's in it, <laughs> you know, anything that I've ever thought, you know, this is like the ultimate core dump, 
you know, so I don't know if there's another book in me and I'm not sure. Maybe there is, uh, you know, I'm thinking about it, but you know, at the moment I'm just happy, you know, that, you know, it's like Lillian Hellman's fame, you know, who wrote the little foxes famously said, I hate writing. I love having written. <laughs> you know, so I empathize with it. I'm kind of like that too. I'm, you know, the writing process is really painful. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy that it's over and I'm happy that it's done and I'm happy I got a book to show for it, you know. And to be honest with you, the only reason I have a book to show for it is because the, the pandemic, you know, basically put me in prison for a year. You know, that's when people do their best prison, you know, their best writing is in prison. Ask Martin Luther <laughs> King. <laughs> well, you know, that's, I, that's I, when I wrote my book, Robert. So I'm, I'm grateful for the, uh, for the lockdown. I just had a prison with a kitchen. That's all. You know, um, so I don't know what I don't know what's next. I really don't. Um, my hope, my hope is that this book will change enough people's minds so that we can get a international conversation going to actually overhaul the entire food system so that food companies can make money doing the right thing, not the wrong thing. And right now they're doing they're doing the wrong thing. And they're, they're, they know they're doing the wrong thing, but they're afraid to change. And so I wrote this book to explain to them how they can still make money doing the right thing and that they can change and then they need to change and that they have to argue to their governments that they need to change and that the governments need to let them and that there are certain things government can do to help promulgate this. The most important thing governments could do, and everyone will agree with this, everyone get rid of the food subsidies because they distort the market. Even the libertarians can get on board with that. Let the market do its work. People say, wait a second, if you got rid of all the food subsidies, then the price of food would go up and that's bad. Well, the Giannini Foundation at UC Berkeley actually did this mental exercise. What would happen to the price of food if we got rid of all the food subsidies? got to be all of them. It turns out the price of food wouldn't change, except for two items, which would go up. Corn and sugar, which is exactly what we want to go up because we need to use less of it. So I think this is where the conversation has to go. This is what I think we need to do to get it started. We also have to bring the environmentalists along because real food ends up not poisoning the planet. You know, everybody's talking about getting rid of cows. All right. Cows are not the problem. Cows are not the problem. Okay. First of all, all right, there are three greenhouse gases. Cows only contribute to methane. The nitrous oxide and the carbon dioxide so outclasses the heat trapping capacity of methane, it's not even funny by like a hundredfold. That's number one. Number two, if you take a look at the cows in America, in 1968, there were 104 million head of cattle, and they produced less, one-fifth the amount of methane than fewer cows today do today, okay? So the methane output per cow has gone up five-fold in the past 50 years. And the question is, why is that? Turns out that's the antibiotics. The antibiotics killed off the normal flora 
in the cow's intestine, allowing the methanogens to take over. So it's not the cows, it's what we did to the cows. So if we actually went back to regenerative farming, if we went back to cows living on the farm with the corn, so that the cow poop ended up in you know nitrogen fixing in the soil rather than nitrogen runoff from you know spraying ammonium nitrate all over the place and having that end up in the groundwater and running into the rivers and causing dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico and causing algae blooms all heating up the planet. If we actually went back to how we used to do things, actually the cows would be our friends. You know, this would be a good thing for the for the environment. All right. So don't get rid of the cows, you know, get rid of the far, our current farming practice and, you know, do it right. So, you know, bringing all these people on board together is sort of my next act. One of the uh, really interesting um, points in the book was talking about the cost of healthcare, and this is in America, and the cost of the, uh, the subsidies. It was something I th- think three and a half trillion is the cost of healthcare. Um, it's up to three point eight now. Three point eight. So if you're able to, and you believe that that seventy five percent of all of that overhead could be removed just by talking about doing what we're doing here. Yeah. No. So not quite. I so seventy five percent of current healthcare expenditures in America are chronic disease, and I think we could remove seventy five percent of that. If we could go back to levels of at 1970, before the obesity epidemic took hold, before processed food ruled everybody's lives, which, you know, presumably if we got rid of all processed food, that would be achievable to be able to go back to that level. So that's why I do the math. 75% of 75% of 3.8 trillion ends up being $2 trillion. Now, the food industry has a gross profit of $657 billion. So we spend two trillion cleaning up the uh, food industry's mess. We spend triple what the food industry makes cleaning up their mess. That is unsustainable. You can't keep doing that. That's you know, and and the problem is the federal government thinks that these are two separate buckets. It's the two things are siloed. They're not. They're the same thing. Okay. They think healthcare is one thing, and they think the food industry is another thing and they don't understand the two that the two are immediately related and we they could actually save more money by doing the right thing making people healthier and the food industry would still make money they don't get it so i gotta show them why they have to get it yeah it's uh dr james mukey i'm not sure whether you know him uh he won australian of the year last year yeah, yeah i know talking about the the how long we've got before the countries are bankrupted because of just type 2 diabetes, right? So that's excluding all the other uh, chronic disease as well. And when people realise that it's going to impact their back pocket, I think that's when it's more likely to have that uh, that aha moment that we're hoping to get. What are your thoughts on that? Well, ultimately, you know, there have to be more votes than dollars. And right now there's way more dollars than votes. And so that has to change. And the only way that can change is with education. So education has to come first. But the problem is education alone is not sufficient. Necessary, but not sufficient. And it hasn't been sufficient for any chronic abuse disorder. Okay? This is a chronic abuse disorder. This is chronic abuse of sugar. 
right? So tobacco, you know, education alone did not solve tobacco. Alcohol, education alone did not solve alcohol. Opioids, education alone did not solve opioids, okay? And the reason is because they're hedonic, they're addictive, okay? And education alone has never solved any substance of abuse. It's necessary as it was for you because it's one of the things that helped you get over it, but in, in and of itself, it is not enough. So, but you, in order to have societal intervention, you have to have a populace that allows for it. So that's where the education comes in. And so we're still kind of in education mode on this. And it's going to be a little while, you know, you know, to get this turned around, but it's starting. It's starting. Here's the way I, I phrase it to people. In the last 30 years in America, probably in Australia too, there have been four, count them, four cultural tectonic shifts in thinking. And here they are. Here are the four. Bicycle helmets and seatbelts, smoking in public places, drunk driving, condoms and bathrooms. 30 years ago, if a legislator had stood up in a state house or in Congress or parliament or, you know, Canberra or anywhere else, okay, and had proposed legislation for any of those things, they got and laughed right out of town. Liberty interest, nanny state, get out of my kitchen, get out of my bathroom, get out of my car. All right? Today, every one of those is fact of life. No one's, you know, belly aching about, you know, their, uh, you know, the, the need to wear a seatbelt, which, by the way, started in Australia, 1968. Okay, you, could, you know, because you have public health down there. We don't. Yeah. Um, no one's, no one's belly aching about that stuff. And if you pull out of your driveway today and you don't click your seatbelt, your kids will scream at you. Dad, what are you doing? Right? So why is that? How, how do we change over 30 years? We taught the children. The children grew up and they voted. And the naysayers are dead. That's how you do a cultural tectonic shift. It takes a generation. Because it turns out you really don't change people's minds. That's what it comes down to. Okay, The naysayers will always be the naysayers. The difference is we won't be having any more naysayers coming up after them because we'll have taught the children. So this is going to take a while. I, By my guesstimate, we're about seven, eight years into it, uh, into this 30-year cycle. But we got to really move fast on it because, you know, we may not have a planet soon. Good time to get friendly with Elon Musk, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm not sure he's got the answer. On the other hand, maybe he'll all get us to Mars. <laughs> we can destroy that planet too. I don't know. Well, it's interesting um, that you bring that up. Uh, I just reached out to a former guest and a friend of mine, um, who is a Mars One astronaut candidate, Dr. Okay. Diane McGrath. She's down to the last 25 globally to be shortlisted, and I'm pretty sure she's going to go. And uh, she's a biohacker, and her and I have a similar dietary thing. Um, she had a question, and it related to what are your thoughts on the differing dietary requirements for women as they age and go through menopause? No, it's a very good question. And, you know, if I knew the answer to that, I probably would win the Nobel Prize because I'd help, I'd, have, I'd help half the world's population all by itself. 
Um, this is a complicated question. Um, you know, there is no doubt that women suffer postmenopausally worse today than they even did before. There's more osteoporosis. There's more heart disease. Um, I have a colleague at um, uh, uh, Hebrew University, Jerusalem, Dr. Efrat Monsenigo Ornan. She's the head of the Department of Nutrition. And it took her 10 years to get this paper published, but it's finally out, which basically says that processed food is the primary cause of osteoporosis. How about that? Processed food is the primary cause of osteoporosis. And she explains why in this paper. So if we fix the food, maybe a lot of things that are going on with uh, postmenopausal women would also get fixed. So heart disease, you know, the only thing that keeps women from getting heart disease is estrogen. And as soon as they hit menopause, there goes the estrogen, the triglycerides climb like crazy and they catch up to men. So the question is where the triglyceride come from? Well, that triglyceride is liver fat. That's fat made in the liver that gets exported out. Well, how come they have so much triglyceride? Because they eat crap. All right. So you could do a lot of good for, for menopause and for postmenopausal women just by fixing the food. Are there other ways to help um, you know, postmenopausal women? Sure. Exercise, weight-bearing exercise is absolutely essential. Most postmenopausal women are not doing that. Um, you know, sleep is enormously important. So, you know, there's, there are things that can be done that are, you know, free, cheap, easy. Thank you for that response. Diane and I share a similar diet. She's been able to put on a third of a kilo at least, and that was a year ago, of skeletal bone density by uh, adopting a carnivore diet. And out of necessity, uh, I've eventuated to a, what, what would be called like a relaxed carnivore diet as well. I eat pastured, grass-fed, grass-finished beef, which is a bit easier to get, or a lot easier to get over here. I vote with my feet. And I asked Professor Barry Marshall, the Nobel Prize winner for the Helibacter pylori. I'm not sure whether you know Barry. Well, I know everything that to know about the uh, <laughs> and, H. pylori and, and, and him experimenting on himself. And hey, that's one way to win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> well, this this ties in with my question. I'm curious to know your thoughts. I have for the last three years had virtually zero fiber in my diet. And when I do that, Robert, I have virtually no gas, no belching. I have the most wonderful, less frequent bowel movements, which I know is a TMI thing, but I talk about this quite a lot on this show. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts on what's going on there. Well, you know, I am for fiber, as you know. I think fiber is sort of the missing nutrient. Uh, and Protect the uh, liver, feed the, feed the gut, right? Protect the liver, feed the gut. And so I am for um, fiber uh, in the form of green vegetables primarily. And also there are a lot of micronutrients in those green vegetables while you're at it that you don't necessarily get on just a carnivore diet. So I think that, you know, if you were on a carnivore diet plus say, you know, leafy green vegetables, you know, that would be optimal. Uh, I, I'm not going to tell you, you should do that. You shouldn't do that. You know, bottom line is you got to feed the gut. 
Now, the question is, if you're not consuming fiber, then what are you feeding them? And the answer is, I don't know. You know, that's the short answer. But um, the assumption is that they still, you know, metabolize what you eat and they still make short chain fatty acids and they're still, you know, uh, immunosuppressive and anti-insulin and they're still helping you. Um, I still think that adding green vegetables works. And there was an article in, um, uh, I think it was the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition uh, not too long ago about how it, easy it is for you to add green vegetables to a ketogenic diet and still be ketogenic. So um, it's not like you can't do that. You can. And I think you should. Well, um, the reason I haven't, and because I uh, I trained as a chef when I left school and, and uh, I enjoyed having plant matter in my diet, Robert, but it, as I included it, uh, it, I didn't feel very good on it. And okay. this was organic. And so the more I eliminated, the better I felt. And I even, and I talk about this with P Barry Marshall, I even captured uh, in a plastic, I had protective gloves on. I captured one of my bowel movements once because I couldn't smell anything when I was going to the bathroom. I was like, that's interesting. And it smelled like the ocean. Uh -huh. And I just find that so interesting. And I'd love uh, for more research to be done on this. Well, and you I'm, got <laughs> And I'm curious to know what oh, would- it smell what, like an ocean. You know, you could go into the air freshener business. <laughs> Well, I'm curious to know what would it what would it need to take for you to try something like that as a as a biohacking or an experimental um, effort? Well, um, obviously, you need a lot of information, and which you don't have. Uh, and just remember, Laban, an N of one is not science. That doesn't mean it would be true for anybody else. You know, we need in order to do that, you need a real, honest to goodness research trial, which I am not about to do. So, you know, maybe somebody will do that someday. What about the um, the George Mann study in 1972 for the Maasai, the Maasai warriors in Africa? Who, yeah, uh, well, they, they, they eat meat and drink milk and blood. And, you know, they have one of the lowest rates of heart disease on the planet, along with the, not just the Maasai, but the Rindili, the Tokelau tribes, um, you know, the, the, the Inuit. You know, I mean, famously, you know, they ate whale blubber. You know, um, I right here, you can't see it because it's over over there. Okay. Is the chair of Williamer Stephenson, the Arctic explorer. And the reason is because my mother was married to William Stephenson's brother in law. And he owned Stephenson Farm for many years. And so his Harvard chair is sitting there. I'm looking at it right now. And so I, you know, so I know a boatload about William R. Stephenson. And in 1912, he was shipwrecked in the, in, in, uh, in the Arctic. And he lived amongst the uh, Eskimos, the, the Inuit, for um, about two years. And he realized that no one, in, no Inuit ever got cancer. There was no cancer whatsoever. Now, they didn't have any carbohydrate. They didn't have any place to grow carbohydrate. They had whale blubber, you know, but they still had a serum glucose level. So he and his immediate colleague who survived the shipwreck with him checked themselves into Bellevue Hospital and for one year lived on only meat. 
no vegetable matter whatsoever, no starch, no nothing, just meat. And it turned out they were healthier than the rest of the entire, you know, hospital population put together. And, you know, this is a famous study, Journal of Clinical Investigation, 1928. Um, so you can do it. You can live on meat alone. The question is, is that optimal? I don't know. Is it doable? Absolutely. Um, is it good for some people and not for others? I don't know. You know, these are these are questions that yet have yet to be answered. You know, populations are not people. And so it's, you know, if you're going to give, you know, that kind of dietary advice, you know, you have to know who you're giving it to and why. And, you know, like I said, an N of one is not science. So, you know, your, you know, shit can smell like the ocean, but that doesn't mean mine would. All right. <laughs> It's it's what I'm trying to do is uh, it's just an elimination protocol. I want to be able to reintroduce the things that I like to eat. And I do experiment from time to time um, with varying levels of um, success. Uh, but I just I end up coming back to not being able to enjoy them. Um, you know, I'm very in tune with my body. So I'm not uh, I don't tell anyone what they should do. I certainly don't promote that at all. Me neither. Me but it, what what I what I really love about you, Robert, is that I can un, I've been trying to empathise and and get inside your head before we did this interview to try and work out exactly where you're coming from, and I think I understand this. Right? Let me have a crack at this. Okay. Your your premise is that looking at this from a helicopter view, it's way too complicated to focus on the nuances of dietary choice and whatever preference you have for keto or whatever, right? That fundamentally, the 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 greatest amount of impact you can have is by educating people to eat whole foods based on the premise that it's all food is inherently good. It's what's done to the food is is what causes all the damage. And that's why I wrote the book. That's the message of metabolical. All food is inherently good. It's what we do to the food that's not. Okay, it's not what's in the food. It's what's been done to the food that's that matters, and that's not on the food label. So you can't learn what you need to know from the food label, except to know that the only food that's safe is the food that doesn't have a label, that you should look at the label as a warning label. That's what you need to know. I mean, that's basically a capsulization of the entire book. And it doesn't matter if you're vegan or keto or anything in between. Ultimately, if you eat real food as opposed to processed food, you will get better. And this was shown by my colleague at Stanford, Christopher Gardner, in his diet fit study. He had a healthy vegan population. He had a healthy keto population. He looked at all of their uh, uh, metabolic parameters and their weight, you know, before and after, and there was absolutely no difference in the mean. There were some people who did better on either one. Like I said, an N of one is not science. You know, different people will respond differently. So there are, you know, within that, population, there were some who were better fitted, you know, possibly metabolically for one diet or the other. And I don't argue that. I'm, I, I, in fact, I'm in favor of that. Um, but when it was all came down to it, you know, the means were no different between, you know, the healthy vegan diet and the healthy keto diet. The only thing that wasn't good was the processed food diet or the low fat diet, which is the processed food diet. So that's 
you know, the, the, the message of this is real food. Eat real food. Eat the food that came out of the ground or the animals that ate the food that came out of the ground and you're good to go. It can't be really more simplified than that, I don't think. And one of the, uh, the, the, the thoughts that I had was, so I've gone through that journey. I feel like I've empowered myself with um, more knowledge than most of the population, which I know sounds like a very arrogant thing, but this is a six-year labor of love and thousands of hours of research and reading and understanding and, and self-experimentation. And so I'm focusing on how to optimize my health Whereas from what I can see from what we were saying, like you want to just get people to at least baseline, you know, like so then they can figure the shit out for themselves because most people are fundamentally so below par that they just don't even know what a, a good life feels like. That's right. M- many of them have never experienced what the f- feeling of health is. And they think this is, you know, this is baseline because they've never actually experienced otherwise. That's exactly right. So I, I understand that, and that's why we have to, you know, turn things around. They don't know any different. Listen, if you think Cheetos is food, you know, all is lost. It's just that simple. <laughs> How would you describe health to someone that may not have a clue? Well, so health is complicated. There's First of all, there's health, and then there's healthy. So when we're talking about food being healthy, it's two things, and we've talked about it already. Protect the liver, feed the gut. Protect the liver from sugar, branched amino acids, glyphosate, heavy metals, et cetera, iron, et cetera. Feed the gut, mostly fiber, you know, because again, fiber is the food for the bacteria. Fiber is the food, you don't, the nutrient you don't absorb because it wasn't for you. It was for your bacteria. And that's what your bacteria eat. And if you don't feed your bacteria, your, your bacteria feed on you. They eat the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells. That denudes them, and now you've got bacterial apposition, and now you've got risk for inflammatory bowel problems, whether it's irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease, or perhaps even leaky gut, which opens up the portals and allows the intestinal contents to make it into the systemic circulation, and now you have systemic inflammation and insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, and maybe it even goes to your brain, opens up those portals too, and now you have psychiatric disease like depression. So bottom line, eat real food, fix those problems, protect the liver, feed the gut, you're good to go. Brilliant. Robert, how do people find you if they're incompetent on the internet? (laughs) I'm too easy to find. Um, Ask my wife. Uh, (laughs) RobertLustig.com is the website. Uh, There's a website for the book. Uh, Here's the book for all of you guys out there. You know, there it is. That's those listening. He's holding up a big, beautiful copy of Metabolical. Um, and that, and there's a website for it, metabolical.com. Okay. And that's where the references for the book are 1054 references all to the primary literature. Just click on it and it will take you right to the journal so that, you know, you can know that I'm not making this stuff up. Um, you know, uh, I'm easy to find. Uh, we have a, uh, a, a nonprofit here in the United States called Eat Real, where we're getting real food into schools, school districts around the, the country. Love for it to be international. If there's a group in Australia who wants to get real food into schools, we'd be very happy to partner. 
Uh, I have a research foundation separate from the university, uh, the Robert H. Lustig Research Foundation, where we're basically trying to, you know, translate science into policy in order to, you know, move this forward and identify the next group of, you know, nutritional researchers who won't be bought off. Um, so, you know, we're, 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 we're available. We're out there. Do you have any concluding thoughts for our audience today, Robert? I have one. One concluding thought. Okay. And this is big. All right. It's a question. What is the difference between marketing and propaganda? I don't know. Marketing is using information to espouse your point of view. Propaganda is using disinformation to espouse your point of view. The difference is the truth. When companies or politicians, for that matter, tell the truth about what they believe, they're marketing. When they tell a lie, that's propaganda. That's the difference. And we have been propagandized for the last 50 years. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Robert Lustig. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.